So we are in Acts chapter 2, though, this morning. Uh, To be truthful with you, I have been thinking a lot about this particular sermon, it being the first sermon of this new year, 2021, a time when we are often filled with lots of just thoughts of potential and optimism, New Year's resolutions. I won't ask you uh, how many resolutions you have already broken uh, in the first three days of the year. Maybe you're still good. You're still on track and good for you. Uh, I'm not going to try and dampen your spirits or anything like that. So uh, good for you. Uh, Hope you can stick with it. (laughs) Um, I'll be I'll I'll just confess with you. I've already broken one of mine. And uh, one of mine was to uh, not read any new books until I finished all of the uh, books that I've opened in the past year. Uh, I have this very long list of books that I have open-ended that I haven't finished. <laughs> and I was trying to be disciplined this year. I'm going to just not read anything new until I finish all the old stuff, and I've already broken that, and it's okay. Um, it, it's, it's a biography, so I guess it's okay. Um, but anyways, uh, hopefully you're doing better than I am. Uh, anyways, I think... New Year's, especially New Year of 2021, we uh, are perhaps a little bit more jaded, uh, maybe that's the word, after what we've just endured. Uh, Remember all of the optimism that approached 2020. And here we are a year later with everything looking so much different, everything appearing to be so uh, changed from where we were 12 months ago. And I think, though, Even despite all that, even still, we as the church, the church of God, God's people, we have every reason to be optimistic and hopeful regarding all of the future days that lie ahead of us. Because no matter what, no matter what our present circumstances, no matter what our days might look like here and now, no matter what challenges that await us in the days and weeks and months ahead, we can be confident precisely because Jesus is still enthroned in the heavens. And that's something that I'm not just saying to be sort of uh, pithy and inspirational and uh, to make you hashtag blessed or anything like that. I'm saying that because I believe it. <laughs> I believe now more than ever before That Jesus is king. And he always will be king. This is the truth, I think, of our day and all of the days that are going to be ahead. That Jesus is king. Jesus reigns, period. That hasn't changed in 12 months. Not even by one small, minuscule degree. By one single uh, sort of percentage point, however small, that hasn't changed. He is reigning. He is in control. That will never change. (laughs) That's something that we can very much be optimistic about and hopeful for. Jesus is king. And I think, though, if you were to look, uh, take a glance, perhaps, let's say, at, at what is happening in churches and congregations all across this country, you might believe that that's not the case. That, that, that Jesus isn't king, that he's actually taken a little bit of a hiatus, that he's just kind of stepped off for just a little bit. In fact, I think one of the things that 2020 has revealed, at least to me, and just looking at America's relationship to the church by and large, and just a really big sort of generalization, uh, I think it's revealed that we are very fickle when it comes to church. That Americans are, I think, by and large, uh, not as, uh, keep, they don't keep church as much of a priority as they once did, or perhaps as they used to, or they should, or perhaps as much as we pretend it is. 
In fact, I think church and church attendance has been exposed for what it is, a convenience rather than a necessity. And everyone, if you've ever been out like witnessing, not just door to door, but on the street or anything, everyone's a Christian until it's inconvenient. (laughs) Until it just kind of rubs them the wrong way. Until it's not sort of easy for them to be a Christian. We can take or leave church depending on the weather. And sometimes we have a good excuse for that. (laughs) But I want to just remind you this morning that church is not... Just a privilege that you and I enjoy because of the freedoms that we have in this country on which this country was founded. That's not why we have church. Church is a divine necessity that has been instituted by God himself for our glory or for his glory and for our good. It comes from him. He's the one that instituted it. He's the one that made it to be what it is. And certainly there's. You can think about the last 12 months. There's been circumstances that have prevented churches from gathering as they, perhaps they wanted to or perhaps as, as they normally would. Some have even closed their doors and it is a, a sad state of affairs in, in all of the ways that you can think about it. But I'm left to wonder that what would you and I, what would the church need to hear in order to prioritize church, I think the way it is shown throughout the New Testament? What, what sort of message would, would inspire us to have the same sort of devotion that we see here in Acts chapter 2? I just, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't have the ability to inspire you. <laughs> I don't have the sort of eloquence or the power or the capability to do any of that. Because no matter how sort of expertly I craft any sermon or how lively we make the worship. Unless you and I are each individually in our souls, in our guts, impacted with the absolute authority and the absolute necessity of King Jesus. We will not prioritize church the way that we ought to. It's up to each one of us in some degree. (laughs) Yes, there's all of these things that we can keep on doing and, and keep on doing for good reasons. But unless we are hit with this supreme truth that Jesus is king and that's all that matters. He is the Messiah, the Christ. As Peter is here testifying before this crowd of Israelites that he is both Lord and Christ then we will not be as he is here establishing the church. That's why I think there's no better words to consider as we start off this new year, as we start off 2021, than to start off by examining this particular passage. As Pastor Nathan referenced, it's sort of the birth of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2. This is the sort of very early aftermath of all of the resurrection uh, events after Jesus has raised and ascended. And it's after this, this great commission that Jesus has given to his apostles. And it's, it, it, this passage is so powerful for a bunch of different reasons. <laughs> It also includes the, the, the seminal moment of Pentecost when the spirit is poured out on Jesus' disciples. And it contains, as Pastor Nathan left off reading, verse 42, uh, which uh, contains perhaps the entire program of what it means to be a church. Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, and the apostles' doctrine. 
But I think what is most fascinating to me, if you look at chapter 2 as a whole, is the fact that uh, all of what we see here, all of the effects of what happens, if you go to verses 37 through the end of the chapter, all of it stems out of preaching. <laughs> it all stems out of a sermon that Peter is inspired to give. The spark that led to the explosion of the gospel, we might say, as we find it throughout the rest of the book of Acts, is a spirit-empowered sermon from one of Jesus' most stubborn disciples, Peter. Look at verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you. And hearken to my words. He's standing up and speaking. He's proclaiming loudly. Verse 37. Now when they heard this. They heard the words that Peter proclaimed. They were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles. Men and brethren what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them repent. And be baptized. And notice the effect of this, verse 41. Then they gladly received what his word and were baptized. And the same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. This is Peter's sermon. If you just read through it, verses 14 through about verse 36. And see how he approaches what he is trying to proclaim and trying to examine. I think we are right to be astounded. (laughs) Think, can you imagine church growth like this? 3,000 souls in one sitting. (laughs) Affected with the power of the gospel and the presence of the spirit. And there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And not just that. Notice verse 47. Or verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house. Did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. A daily adding to the church through the power of the gospel and the power of the preaching that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think though, more, even more though benefit arises if you just examine uh, these results in light of what Peter said. Because it's, it's one thing to like go after these results. Like I too, I would love for our church to be added by 3,000 people. And we could maybe do that by cheating or something like that. But to do it the way Peter did. It's another thing to do it in the way that the apostle Peter did it. He wasn't out doing some crazy entertainment skit or, or, or anything like that. He wasn't making the church something other than what it ought to be, which is what exalting the authority of King Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. Because <laughs> if you look at Peter's sermon, we're giving not only profound insight, I think, into the message of the gospel, but into the method of the message of the gospel. Which I think is really important for us to examine. So really quickly in our time remaining. I want to go through I think three truths uh, that we see here from Peter's sermon. That relate to the method of not just preaching. But to the method of our message as the church. 
in a sermon entitled, Hear These Words. Notice verse 14. We have, first of all, the mode of our message. The mode of our message. Notice verse 14 again. Because it's very interesting to me to hear this contextual detail. It says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. You see, this, of course, follows... Uh, Pentecost, as we noted, the day of the Holy Spirit's outpouring, which occurs, or we have that for us in verses 1 through 5 or 6. And this is something that Jesus promised would happen. He promised back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, that this is going to happen, that his spirit would come upon them, and they would be witnesses unto him. And, well, let's read that verse, Acts 1, 8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He, he promised that this would come. And it's not just promised by Jesus, the resurrected Christ. It's something, as Peter here asserts at the very beginning of his sermon, that this has been promised and prophesied from way back in the time of Joel. The prophet Joel in the Old Testament. You can read verses uh, 16 through about 21 uh, here in chapter 2 of Acts. You can also go to Joel chapter 2 and read verses 28 through 32. And it's almost exactly the same quotation that Peter is here referencing. You see, the apostles on whom... uh, This is so... This is just funny to me. It makes me makes me kind of laugh. Is that the apostles are here. They have the spirit poured out on them. Great power is in their midst. And they begin speaking in tongues. And those that are near them accuse them of drunkenness. Look at verse 12. And they, they meaning all those who were around them, were all amazed and were in doubt. Saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. (laughs) They were full of such Strong drink that they are perhaps drunk early at the hours, at the early hours of the day. Peter, of course, takes this up and responds to them. Hearken to my words, he says, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing verse 15, it is but the third hour of the day. It's too early. It's too early to be drinking new wine. But this is that. Which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This, what you are seeing now before your eyes, what you are in the presence of, is what was prophesied way back by the prophet Joel. This is the fulfillment of it. Their accusers were devout Jews. Look at verse 5 as it says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. These are devout, sort of pious, religious followers of the Mosaic codes and laws and ordinances. Those who are perhaps very resistant to the teachings of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Whether or not this crowd was made up of Pharisees, we aren't told. We, uh, it doesn't say who they are perhaps in that sort of regard. But in any case, just know that, that Peter's audience here, as he begins to speak, as he stands and lifts up his voice, they are automatically dismissive of anything that he could ever say. They've already made up their mind about him. They don't want to hear his words. Peter, though, it doesn't deter him. It doesn't sort of make him not speak up. It doesn't make him not lift up his voice in a very strong and bold and very confident manner. Not in the slightest. 
Because even as he's surrounded by this crowd of devout Jews who would rather he just shut his mouth and go away, Peter stands and preaches. Verse 14 again, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Peter, standing. You see, we might normally gloss over that fact as just a really descriptive term. And in fact, it is. It's describing Peter's position as he is here before this crowd. And I, but I want to draw your attention to that fact. Peter, standing. You see... The traditional mode of teaching in this day and age, in the first century and before, especially the religious sort, was always to have the teacher seated. This was sort of the prominent position of those who were wise, those who had intelligence to give and to uh, impart unto other people wisdom that they might uh, have other people come to attain. They were seated. If you examine the Gospels, in fact, you'll find this repeatedly evident about Jesus Christ. He was sitting, uh, actually, in fact, in his most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. In the first two verses, it talks about how Jesus sat. That incredible sermon that we always go to, it's Jesus sitting and teaching. Such is also why in Luke chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus, when he comes to that synagogue on that day, he reads from Isaiah 61. He stands and reads. He reads the text from which he's about to expound. And then it says, and he closed the book and sat down. And that's when he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He sits and teaches. He assumes the position of a rabbi as one who has all wisdom from on high. This is how all the teachers sort of took uh, up their positions and taught their subjects and taught their students. They sat down as though having authority and wisdom and insight. And from there, they proclaimed their knowledge for those listening. So notice again, verse 14, Peter is not sitting. He's not sitting down. Peter, it says, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. You see, this is not just a a small minor detail that we can gloss over. It's not just something that, that is meant to just kind of be there to fill space and give us a picture. It's meant to be indicative of Peter's mission, of, I would say, even the apostles' message, our message as the church. Because you see, standing and lifting up your voice in this manner is the position of a herald, not a teacher. Of a herald, a messenger, one who we could say is a town crier who comes into the midst of the most public square and has messages. And he says, extra, extra, read all about it. Look at this message that I have. Hearken to my words. Hear ye, hear ye. He's a messenger, one who bears tidings that have been given to him by someone else. That's the definition of a herald. He's been given a message that he has been commissioned to proclaim with all senses of urgency. You have to listen to this message. You have to hear this news. This is the position that Peter takes. 
He is a herald of King Jesus. He is sort of like a newsboy on the corner of the street, again crying out, extra, extra, here's the good news of the gospel of this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, that one that you've been longing for, the Messiah that you've put all your hopes in, he has already come. See, this is our position as well. As the church of God, We have been commissioned as newsboys. We've been commissioned as heralds of this announcement to proclaim with all urgency that the gospel is here and that the good news has come and is found in this person, Jesus. This is who we are. We're heralds. We're messengers. We don't teach people uh, just wise little tips and tidbits on how to live better. We stand and we announce with urgency on our lips the gospel of grace. Repent and believe in Jesus for the remission of sins, Peter is essentially saying in verse 38. This is what we do as the church here in the church building and yes, as we live our lives outside the church building. We are emissaries, we are newsboys, heralds, messengers for Jesus announcing his message. Which is what? If you go to Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, he announces, I am the kingdom of God. You see... This is our position as well. This is the mode of our message too. It's an urgent message in which we declare Jesus' authority. Not wise tidbits and how to make life easier on how to perhaps fix things that you'd rather have fixing. It's announcing death and resurrection. It's announcing the hope that we have in Jesus' remission of sin by his own death and resurrection. And I went back and and I looked just to make sure I wasn't making this up. But in my very first sermon here as your pastor on June of 2019, I said that if you were looking for tips and tricks on how to live your best life, you would surely be disappointed. (laughs) And I didn't mean that just to sort of subvert your expectations of church. I meant that truthfully and I mean that again now. (laughs) That the church is not a place... For spiritual life hacks. It's not a place for how to have a little bit more, quote, Christian success. Because that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible's about something far more urgent than spiritual life hacks. It's a book about resurrection and redemption and remission from sin. It's an urgent message that comes for those who are dead in trespasses and sins. As it says to us in Ephesians 2. This message that Peter was was given by Jesus. Who says you will be witnesses of me. This is the most urgent news we could ever share with anyone. That yes. There is a king to be found. And this king in fact died for you. Took your sin for you. Church the mode of our message is urgent. But notice number two. The manner of our message. Because notice as he's speaking this incredibly powerful sermon. Notice the manner of his message. Um, Because if you read this sermon. Go through. Read it on your own time perhaps. Verses 14 through about 36. 
I think of all the sermons that Peter gives throughout these early pages of the book of Acts, you can clearly see, I think, his character on full display here. You know, we've been going through Peter's letters on Sunday evenings here at Stonington. And I think what is most evident to me is that Peter is who he is. <laughs> He's sort of that guy that you know that, that what you see is what you get. And Peter in the Gospels is very much the Peter that we have here in the Acts of the Apostles. Except that all of his sort of boldness, his brashness, his sort of stubbornness, if I can say that, is now channeled. Is channeled by Jesus. <laughs> he has now taken this really sort of uh, thick-headed man in, a, in the Apostle Peter and channeled all of that bravado into, being, in, into him being so boisterous and bold about Jesus. Such is what leads him to that declaration in verse 36 that he is both Lord and Christ. All of these words that make up Peter's sermon... They're short on coziness, and they're very strong on conviction. He doesn't mince words when he's speaking. He doesn't try to soften the blow about what he is sort of leading them up to. He begins with a strong declaration. Hearken to my words. Hear me. You have to listen to what I have to say. And all throughout, his proclamation is authoritative. It is assertive. If you read all these words, Peter's not doubtful. He doesn't sort of uh, question what he's saying. He's not uncertain about it. He's not nebulous. He doesn't uh, waver. He doesn't waffle. He's not wishy-washy about what he is presenting to these uh, hearers. He was, he was clear. He was concise. He was confident. And he was bold with what he was saying. Notice verse 22. He's addressing these same people in the crowd. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know, him being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Hear these words. Hear these words. These words aren't my words, he's essentially saying. These are words that I've been given, and I'm relaying them to you. Hearken unto what I have to say. Make sure you, you pay attention. But notice how he wraps up his sermon. Notice again verse 36. Because as he's bringing everything to sort of a close, notice how he wraps it up. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, without a doubt, without any sort of questioning, that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. (laughs) He refers to these Jews that are here in this audience as the house of Israel. Something that was obviously a callback to all of those Old Testament stories that they were familiar with, that they grew up hearing. (laughs) Remember about all of those times of the people of Israel uh, and the, the wilderness wanderings and the exodus and all those sorts of things. He's tying them to that and all of the covenants and promises that go with that. And then he proceeds to affirm to them that the one promised to the house of Israel, the Messiah, the Christos, 
The one that they had been longing for and looking for and pining for as you read all of the prophets and that dreadful longing, that agonizing waiting for the Messiah to come and make everything right, to repair everything as we have looked at in the series through Advent, to restore all of the ruins, all of the ruinous states of Israel's physical and spiritual life. That one who was promised to do it. Notice he says, you crucified him. You killed him. You took him in your hands and you nailed him to a cross. Undeservedly, unjustly. His only charge was that he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. And they declared it to be blasphemy. And Jesus was saying, you know not what you do. The blood of their Messiah, the one they had been waiting for, was on their hands, Peter is saying. You are the ones who killed him. Verse 22 again. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the terminate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Can you imagine anything more startling or stunning or just downright scandalizing to this audience? You are the murderers. (laughs) You are the crucifiers. You're the ones who took your king and nailed him to a cross in the most shameful act possible. I am positive that these words cut this crowd to the quick. Talk about a gut punch. That's what these words of Peter's are. Brought this crowd low. Brought this crowd to a devastating pit. They were the murderers. They were the rebellious ones. And such was the manner of the church's message, yes, even today. That just like Peter, ours is a message with which we can be as bold as lions in declaring both, yes, the devastation of your sin and mine, but also, yes, the deliverance of Jesus' salvation. Because notice what happens. He says, you are the ones who've crucified this Jesus, this one that you have so longed for. And notice when they are just crying out, what are we to do? What's our recourse? Repent. He says, verse 38. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Repent and believe. You see, before any sense of salvation can be had, we as a church must first come to a sense of our own conviction. We must have our eyes sort of opened and our hearts and our spirits awakened to this deep and desperate need that salvation is, in fact, necessary. Every time we step through the threshold of church, we ought to see ourselves just as Peter has presented us here. That we are the crucifiers. We are the murderers. We are the sinners. The ones who, in a way, put Jesus on the cross. We put him there by our sin, by our rebellion, by our rejection of him. 
We come through the threshold of church knowing that. And as we are brought low by that devastating reminder, we are then hit by the power of the gospel which says, yes, you who are devastated can be rebuilt by the remission of sins in Jesus. We preach both. Devastation and deliverance. The power of sin, but the ever-abounding power of grace. So what this means is that you can check all of your expectations for fuzzy, feel-good messages at the door. (laughs) It's not just about making us feel better. It's not just about uh, making us feel a little bit more comfortable. Do you think Peter's sermon made these Jews feel better about themselves? I doubt not. (laughs) I doubt they were patting themselves on the back as as Peter was laying truth after truth and, and conviction after conviction in front of them. It's not at all what Peter was was endeavoring to do. It was solely about lifting up Jesus of Nazareth as both Lord and Christ, as their only Savior, as their only hope. That's what he was called to do. That's what he was commissioned to do. And that's what he was always set about doing. That I have no, nothing else to give you but Jesus. You see, the message of the church, yours message, my message, the message as of, of this church collectively, it's not about making you feel better. It's not about easing your conscience and making you feel cozy and comfortable by affirming that you can just live better if you just think harder and try more and do better. It's about fixing your eyes on the only thing that matters, namely this predominant truth that Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ, has come, as it says, in the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of his Father to bear the entire punishment for all of your rejection and rebellion and and sin for you. He took it on himself. Not just your sin and my sin, but the sins of the whole world. This is what he has done. And that by dying, he is proven to be both Lord and Christ. He is proven to be a human sufferer and a divine Christ. Who is able to bear the weight of the world's infirmities. This is who Jesus is. And this is the manner of our message. A bold declaration. Of Lord and Christ. Devastation and deliverance. Of rejection and then resurrection and reconciliation. All those wonderful terms in the good news. These are bound up in what Peter is here declaring to this crowd. But notice lastly. Because that leads me to I think perhaps the most important truth of all. And this sort of method of Peter's preaching. His mode was urgent. His manner was bold. But also number three. Notice verse 22. The man of our message. The man of our message. Notice he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him 
being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. See, all of these things, the mode of this message and the manner of it and the means of it, the means of faith as we read in verse 42, uh, all of these things that make the church what it is, that make the church who it ought to be, it's all tethered to this one person, Jesus. Jesus specifically of Nazareth. We owe him everything. Jesus paid it all as we sung here this morning. All to him I owe. I hope that that is our prayer. I would hasten to say that Peter knew that. He would sing that hymn with all manner of gusto that he could muster with, from deep within him. Because he knew how much Jesus paid. Peter's entire sermon is centered around this central premise. That that man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he spent so much time with, that he was so close to, that he had spent all those intimate waking hours with, this Jesus of Nazareth, as it says in verse 36, is both Lord and Christ. He's the king of all. The king we've been waiting for. The king of our salvation. The king of glory. He is the almighty one. The Christ. And in fact if you read. Many of the sermons that make up the bulk of the book of Acts. They are all entirely fixated on evidencing as sort of being apologists for the message of Christ. Saying, all he said was true, and you can bank on it. Why? Because we touched him. We touched his resurrected body. Such is what Jesus predicted. Again, back in verse 8 of chapter 1, when he says that ye shall be witnesses unto me. You won't be witnesses unto signs. You won't be witnesses unto crazy events. You won't be witnesses unto incredible miracles. You're going to be witnesses unto me. Yes, signs and wonders and miracles happen. But they are all an evidence of what? That Jesus is the Christ. That his life and death and resurrection is for a singular purpose. His Father's glory and yours and mine remission from sin. This is what everywhere the apostles were endeavoring to do and to demonstrate. If you read all of these things, they were always so adamant that Jesus is the Christ. And I would say that our message, like Peter's, ought to be preoccupied with Jesus as well. With who Jesus is. With what Jesus did and why Jesus did it. All of these things. This is our ministry program as a church. The point around which all of what we do here in church as the church. That point around which we revolve. It's Jesus himself. It's not a program. It's not another priority. It's not some other mission. It's not some other mandate. We have one singular mandate. To be witnesses unto Jesus. 
Their commission that was given to them by the words of Christ is our commission too. And if we aren't giving them Jesus, what are we giving them? We can, they, people who come to church, they can find entertainment somewhere else. <laughs> we don't need to entertain them here. That's why I don't tell jokes. Also because I don't have very many. I'm not going to try and, and be funny. <laughs> There's a lot funnier people out there, I promise you. We don't have to try to entertain. We don't have to try to convince them that we can give them some sort of psychology that can make them feel better about themselves. We don't have any other message other than Jesus. He... And he alone, the Christ, is the sum and substance of all that we have and of all that we are. This is what the apostles went about preaching. And this is what we ought to go about preaching as well. This is our message. It's a man and his name is Jesus. And this to me, I think, is the most remarkable thing in all of our faith. Because as Peter is here saying in, in both of those references in verse 22, and he's, and he's talking about it all the way through in verse 36, is he's tying all of what he believes to a real person. And you can see it in all of his letters and all of his sermons. You can bank on this. I touched this guy. He's real. He was here and he is the Christ. You have a real person that you believe in. You don't just have a set of codes or a set of messages or doctrines or beliefs or truths. If you believe in Jesus, the Savior, the Savior from your sins, you believe in a real person who is really sitting on a real throne in a real heaven as the real King of glory. It's not just an inspirational, amorphous, sort of nebulous thing. It's a real thing. Because Jesus the man, Jesus the man from Nazareth ascended across and had real nails pierced through real hands. And as he dripped real blood onto the ground that stood at the foot of Calvary, there he really and truly and finally and forever paid for your sins. This is Jesus, the one in whom we believe and the only reason why we come to church. Hear these words. Jesus is why we are here. And so in 2021, my charge to you as a church family is just this. Recommit to the necessity of church. Not because we want people here. Because we see it as what it is. As the place where the urgency of our message And the boldness of our message is here most truthfully and powerfully proclaimed. And precisely because of who this message is all about. This person. This man. Jesus of Nazareth. We can be bold with this message. It's not our message. It's Jesus's. Uh, recently, I, I, I cannot escape this passage from this older minister who was preaching, I think, in the late 1800s. His name was John Henry Jowett. And he was writing in this book, a book called Apostolic Optimism. And it's a series of his sermons. I think I've shared this with you before in some other instance, but I want to share it again. Because to me, it is so powerful in the way he words this. 
He's talking about preaching, ironically enough. And he's talking about how we ought to, like Peter, or excuse me, like Paul, as he, as he talks about in the letters to the Corinthians, preach nothing but Christ crucified. And Jowett says this. We preach Christ crucified. We do not whisper it. We do not timidly submit it for subdued discussion in the academic grove. We do not offer it to the hands of exclusive circles. We preach it. We stand out like the town crier in the public way. And we proclaim it to the common and the indiscriminate crowd. We preach it boldly and definitely. Christ and him crucified. It was the only message for the apostolic day. It is the only gospel for our own. My friends, this is who we are as the church. We don't come and whisper the message of Christ. We proclaim it as Peter himself is here doing. Standing and lifting up with a loud voice. Here is the gospel. Christ and him crucified. There's no more news That is more worthy of your attention than that. Hear these words. Let us pray.